The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of the book The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 29th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll discuss the latest kerfuffle over ESPN and politics, this one occasioned by Dan Levitard's response to the center back chant at a recent Donald Trump rally. We'll also talk about the LSU football team's lavish new locker room, which includes sleeping pods and a lot of purple carpeting. Finally, Sports Illustrated's Emma Bachelary will be here to explain how the Atlantic League has become a laboratory for the future of baseball. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio, fresh off his appearance at the 2019 North American Scrabble Championship, it is the author of the book's Word Freak and a few seconds of panic, Mr. Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Joining us via the unsponsored Hang Up and Listen hotline, it's the host of Slow Burn Season 3, an America's <laughs> fastest 10-year-old circa a long time ago, our Slate colleague, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hello. Good morning. It was 1988. <laughs> You'll always be the fastest 10-year-old in our hearts. <laughs> That's right, right. I still feel 10 years old some days. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Shall we start? Let's start. Let's start. The day after Donald Trump let a rally crowd chant send her back about Democratic Congresswoman Ilan Omar, the iconoclastic and extremely popular ESPN radio and TV show host Dan Lebitard, whose parents are Cuban exiles, told his audience what he thought. Lebitard's monologue lasted nearly four minutes. Let's listen to a bit of it. Uh, what happened last night, uh, this this felt uh, un-American, what happened last night, okay? Uh Basically, a chant, send her back, is not, you know, it's not the America that that my parents came to get for us, for exiles, for brown people. Like, there's a racial division in this country that's being instigated uh, by the president. And we here at ESPN haven't had the stomach for that fight because Jamel did some things on Twitter and you saw what happened after that. And then here, all of a sudden, nobody talks politics on anything unless we can use one of these sports figures as a meat shield in the most cowardly possible way to discuss these subjects. But what happened last night at this rally is deeply offensive, um, done by the president of our country. Lebitard's comments renewed a conversation about sports, politics, and commentary at ESPN that last surfaced in 2017 when former ESPN host Jamel Hill, whom Lebitard referenced in that clip, called Trump a white supremacist on Twitter and drew a response from the White House. That pushed ESPN to enact a policy restricting political commentary. Lebitard obviously ignored that here and even attacked the policy directly. He wasn't suspended, which says something about his influence at the company. Joel, before we get to the broader questions of what people should be talking about on ESPN and what they shouldn't be talking about, let's talk about Lebitard because... You know, I feel like a conflict here was inevitable. His show has never been about sports. It's a talk show centered around sports, produced by a sports network. He's always gone there. Yeah. At first, it started out as he was a player apologist, which like has all sorts of connotations that, you know, he was sort of a coddler of black athletes and, you know, whatever pathologies certain people envisioned they might have. Um, and it's sort of morphed over the years, right? But it's not, it's not like he's some sort of political pundit and he's always weighing in on Obama. Like there's very little that he said about Obama or even Trump. Like it's not like he's waded into like specifically political waters every now and again, but he has not been afraid to have discussions about race and gender. And like that's sort of when you get into, well, wait, what is actually political here? Because sports involves lots of issues that, you know, center around race and racism and gender and sexism. And he's not afraid to talk about that. And so it seems like, like if with anything else, and it's, it's kind of why he's running up against these problems now is like, what, what actually counts as political? Like when ESPN says that we're not going to discuss politics and there's going to be some restriction on the speech that we have around politics, 
like what actually counts as politics and it's not really consistent. And um, I think that, like, it, like you said, it was sort of inevitable for Levitar to be the guy that would run up against this company-wide policy. Yeah, Joel, you were at ESPN before you were at Slate, we should note. And ESPN has had a history of hiring people who, uh, you know, are are known for having strong opinions. That's right. sort of what the, uh, you know, what, what sells in the commentary space. And a lot of those people, if they're intelligent and are following what's going on in the world, are going to have opinions about stuff that intersects with politics. Obviously, everything that happens in sports intersects with politics. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jimmy Pataro, the president of ESPN, has said, he said in a profile in the Washington Post that sports is about uniting and ESPN needs to unite people around sports. That's childish and infantilizing. And I don't think anyone actually believes that. Yeah. I mean, like, also, that's not necessarily an objective, you know, clear-eyed, centrist opinion either. You know what I mean? Like, the idea that sports should be something that everybody rallies around. I mean, that's a political position in its way. It's just, like, one that's, like, really dumb. And I mean, some people come to sports specifically for the division. Like, I mean, what, do you think Auburn and Alabama fans are always wanting to come together about things or the fighting sports? Like, that's not about uniting people. I mean, we're looking at spectacle. And so, yeah, I don't I don't get that. But, um, yeah, it's something that people chafe under uh, at the company, obviously. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of people that have a lot of opinions. And in fact, some of us were hired because we actually had opinions that caught their attention um, and they bring you in. Um, and they don't necessarily, you know, after we get to that point, they want to guard their money. But I think this is really new. And I think that's because, you know, ESPN is, was a sort of a weakened position because, yes, ratings started to decline and stupid people tried to tie it to like the idea that they were dabbling in politics and discussing issues that weren't necessarily limited to just, you know, balls and points. But, I mean, obviously, what was going on there was larger than that. But because, you know, you could say, hey, well, ESPN's ratings are going down. Look at all this other stuff they're doing. Look at these what these people are talking about. It was sort of easy to make that the scapegoat. And, you know, ESPN, as Dan Levitard said, they didn't have the stomach for the fight. So they bowed to it. Yeah, there's a correlation and causation issue here. And Pitaro, I think it's worth pointing out, came from the Disney side of the company. He's a very sort of straightforward corporate kind of guy. He's not. This is not a risk taker. John Skipper, his predecessor, was perceived as much more of a risk taker in terms of programming and ideas Someone and content. Someone had a journalistic background or created, believed in journalism. Yes. Right. Believed in 30 for 30, the documentary series, believed in creating more challenging content like Outside the Lines and allowing reporters to actually do investigative journalism. The most damning quote in this <laughs> profile of Pitaro Stefan was, when asked about Pataro's best qualities, one ESPN executive said, he runs a good meeting. Runs a good meeting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Kill me if somebody ever says that about wow. me yeah. anonymously in a, in a yeah. profile. Yeah. And so what, what that, I think, leads to is this belief that he articulates that sports is about uniting. Now, sports is about competing. Sports is about, if sports was about uniting, ESPN wouldn't have created the Shout Show program. I mean... <laughs> It is, it's ridiculous. And so Pitaro is the kind of guy, and this is also borne out by Ben Strauss's profile, that relies extensively on focus grouping and market researching and trying to find that non-existent middle ground for what people want. So this belief that we give people what they say they want in focus groups seems to govern the approach toward how you create a successful network. And yeah, like you pointed out, ratings are down, people are cutting the cord. There are issues here. You have you know, constituents, not just fans and listeners, but you've also got the leagues that you partner with. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a delicate dance, but if you're going the dumb route, which is what Pitara seems to want, the sort of the Switzerland route, that's probably not going to be successful well, long-term either. Well, Joel, I mean, Pitara obviously has a hard job. Yeah. And yeah. He can say one thing in public to maybe placate shareholders, and perhaps the reality in the company is different. I mean, it, the, there's not really an easy answer to this question. Like, whatever he says or does, you know, cl- the Clay Travises of the world are not going to be placated. Right. So that's like a losing 
battle. It's the same with Trump. Like if you, you know, don't call him racist, it's not like he's going to become like a nice person and say like, oh, they're not calling me racist. I better like I'm going to stop being racist now. Um, (laughs) But do you feel like there's anything that is there a policy here that would actually make sense? Or is that is Pataro just kind of in like a no win situation and he should just shut up? I actually think that like with a lot of things that having a policy is the problem because it like, then you're locked into, then people say, well, look what you did. Look what you did to Jamel. Like, why didn't you suspend Levitar now? You know, it's like people start comparing suspension lengths. Like you're suspended for two weeks for calling Trump a white supremacist. Now is this, uh, is this like half as bad or twice as bad? And then like precedent can be used against you. Exactly. Yeah. There was no reason for them to come up with the policy. Um, I mean, the thing is, for the most part, there are not a lot of people at ESPN that necessarily want to discuss Donald Trump or like even have the interest in like discussing him in a way that he relates to their job. So we're only really talking about a handful of people. And those are the people that happen to be polarizing to like the median, you know, white male sports fan that does not want to discuss um you know, race or, 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 or whatever politics. But again, like that is a political position. When you strip that stuff from the discussion in sports, that is a political position. You're saying well, that, you know, other people's experiences, the other way, the other way, the other perspectives, which they bring to these games don't matter. Um, and I just don't think that there's any way around that. So like Pataro, you know, pretty much backed himself into a corner by having this policy. Well, it wasn't Pataro. It, I mean, this started, in fact, <laughs> I was there at that meeting, the one, one of John Skipper's last meetings at ESPN, where they announced this social media policy and uh, the other policies related to like you know what we were allowed to say. Um, and he inherited it and appears to want to double down on it, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Nobody had to know that this was a thing that ESPN wanted to do. And if if you had an employee that said something that was obviously you know offensive or something that was outside of the lines or you know whatever, you could handle it on a case by case basis, but. Now that they've decided to double down, I mean, they're going to go through this again. And like, again, when Levitard, if this happens again, I mean, what are they going to do? You know, if Levitard decides, well, I want to discuss this, I know that he's supposed to run it up the, you know, run it up the pole there and before he's able to talk about politics. But I just I don't even understand how that's workable. So not on a show that's all about extemporaneous conversation. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Well, there is something different about what Levitard did here. I mean, to be to be clear, he just talking about how Trump is racist and led (laughs) uh, and and presided over this rally where this chant was chanted. And it wasn't about Colin Kaepernick, wasn't about anything that Mm -hmm. intersected with sports and politics. I think it's dumb and limiting to say that what he said was politics, but it wasn't sports, I think is the the clear thing. And so I don't think we should act like what this was is like the same as, you know, again, Levitar talking about Kaepernick or talking about about anything else where there's an intersection. And it makes sense that from the company's perspective, that they would not want Levitard to be saying stuff like this. I think that's fair, except that I think you also have to acknowledge that Dan Levitard's show as Mike Schur. I mean, it would be a much worse show. But Mike Schur wrote an entire profile last year for Slate about Dan Levitard. And the premise was that this is not a show about sports. If you're yeah. going to hire Dan Levitard, mm-hmm. you're hiring a talk show host. And that right. means there is some likelihood that you're going to talk about lots of non-sports things. And one of the non-sports things that Dan Levitard might talk about is something that is more explicitly political than the nexus between sports and politics that's direct. And the issue with these social media policies, and they're not just at ESPN, they're, you know, they exist at all manner of media outlets that prize, you know, themselves for objectivity. The issue there is that you can't bring your full self to work or to, you know, this outlet that is public and is a part of how you, you know, demonstrate who you are and and what you believe and to ask people to silence themselves or not express what they believe. That's a very big ask from the place that you work. It's really weird, right? Because like, let's just narrow it down for a second, because the idea is that you don't want people to impugn your ability to be to be seen as an objective journalist, right? Or you don't want to antagonize what you believe to be your customer base. But like let's just think about like Woj for for a second, right? Like nobody believes Woj is like 
agnostic when it comes to the issue of like LeBron, right? He's written things about how LeBron was childish and just not a leader, things like that over the years. Like, I mean, you can look at his uh, archive and, and look for it and look at that. But he also is a reporter and he reports things like, you know, the Woj bomb is basically like transaction theater. You know what I mean? And he, he he's covering that all the time. And nobody says, hey, uh, the things that he's written about LeBron, that might affect the things he might report about the Lakers or, you know, Kawhi not going to the Lakers. Right. So people don't question Woj's objectivity because it's in the realm of sports and it doesn't make a lot of sense. If you like think about the reasons that people say, well, he can't discuss uh, our immigration policy or something like that, or, 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 or even just Kaepernick having an opinion about it, it, it would prevent you from being able to do your job objectively. And we don't do that often. So I just, I just, there's a lot of inconsistency around it. And really it's just about discomfort. I think like corporate discomfort. I think that the real issue here is that if you look at what Pataro has said, the politics thing, I w- I'm not going to say it's a red herring, but I feel like what we should really be thinking about when we're thinking about the future of this company and this outlet that employs so many talented journalists is that this is now clearly a company that does not understand or care about journalism. And it's not mm-hmm. that the John Skipper ESPN was perfect and they were like the journalism respecters, uh, full mm-hmm. stop, 100% all the time. But when I hear what Pataro says, I don't necessarily hear somebody who fundamentally thinks that politics are bad or that sports should unite. The thing that I hear blaring is, I do not care about journalism. That is what I hear. I hear something else too. I hear that we want to be safe at all times. We don't want to That's push. kind of like another version of I don't care yeah. about journalism. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we want to be they safe. They don't want to follow the story wherever it takes them. They want to follow the story in like the safe lane. But even forgetting the journalism, we don't want to be at all perceived by anyone as, you know, what's the word? Controversial, taking sides, engaging in any sort of deeper intellectual conversation about something that doesn't involve a win or a loss. I mean, Pataro in that story talked about changing the perception of ESPN by its viewers, right or wrong, fair or unfair perceptions become reality. Well, if you're only worried about perceptions and you you believe that, you know, ESPN is better because Donald Trump stopped attacking ESPN and the NFL, well, you're really driving down the slowest lane on the roadway. I should I should also be clear that when I say that the corporate value is I don't care about journalism, that doesn't mean they don't do good journalism. Right. It right. just means from like the higher levels of the company, this is not the thing that they think is important, important. or that they'll fight to the death to defend. Right. And, and to add on to what I just said, that that Pataro says that market research saw the partisan gap in perception of the network dissipating, and that's a good thing. So, hey, let's keep going there. It's sort of interesting, too, because it opens them in a way that maybe hasn't been true in the past to like an attack from somebody that would like to fill in that gap, right? I mean, the way that people consume sports coverage and sports media has already sort of fractured a little bit. Like, there's all sorts of different places you can get it. Hopefully, you get it from Hang Up and Listen. It's like one place, right? But um, th- I mean, if ESPN is going to play the safe route and they're not going to, you know, sort of like play at that nexus of race and sex and, you know, gender and other things that intersect with sports, there may be room for somebody else to come in there and do that. And like, I mean, maybe they maybe they don't care about that. Maybe they say, well, hey, look, we've got all the live sports. You know, you can watch MMA on ESPN now. So, like, we don't give a damn. But it just doesn't seem like a good long term, like to be safe like that. Like, that doesn't seem like a good long term strategy. But, you know, I didn't technically work for Disney. I've not made a lot of money in my life, so maybe I'm wrong on this. And the other point, I think, is that, and this dovetails with with what you just said, Joel, is that, look, ESPN wants to hire smart people who have big personalities, and I think Jamel Hill pointed this out in a piece she wrote in response to the Levitard fracas at The Atlantic, where she now works. That's going to be a problem. How do you retain people that have personalities that go beyond, you know, wanting to host SportsCenter and make some clever comments about the day's happenings in sports? Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. A little more than a week ago, videos began to emerge of LSU's new privately funded $28 million football operations and performance nutrition center. The most notable feature in the building are the new lockers, which feature luxurious chairs that transform into individual sleeping pods. An article on LSUsports.net describes it as a cross between first-class cabin on an airplane and a space station from a science fiction film. That same article quotes a player, Carrie Vincent, as shouting, Everybody at LSU is staying all four years now, maybe even five or six. Nobody's leaving. (laughs) Another guy, Jacoby Stevens, said, There's no point in going home. Why would I need to leave? I got everything I need right here which for the LSU Athletic Department is pretty much the entire point. Joel, before we get into the larger issues at play here, do you understand the perspective of the players here when you played at TCU? Would a cross between a first-class cabin on an airplane and a space station, (laughs) would that have appealed to you? I mean, I definitely think it would have been cool, right? And like, even... Even for the time that I went there in, which was 1996, it was just a big locker room with wooden, you know, like a wooden, uh, like shelving area. Like I was like, oh man, this is the nicest locker room I've ever been in. You know what I mean? Like it was like, so it wouldn't, obviously you, these kids are not going to turn it down. I mean, it is pretty cool. Um, will it really make a difference between somebody wanting to go to Baton Rouge or Tuscaloosa or Fayetteville? Like I, I, I don't know, but well, definitely like, it'll it make a difference hurt. between Baton Rouge and Fayetteville. Like, but well, maybe, yeah. not, maybe not between Baton Rouge and Tuscaloosa. Okay, well, Fayetteville got a forty million dollar uh, locker room. Do you think it would make a difference? But it's in Fayetteville. Fayetteville's a nice. Hey, Fayetteville's a nice town. Baton Rouge. Okay, I Ooh. mean, we, we yeah, let's I'm not sorry, get off sorry. track. Let's not get off I track. Know, sorry, but anyway, but no, I mean, I, I certainly it's appealing, but I don't know that it makes a difference if that makes any sense. One other question before we we move on here was is sleeping in the locker room? A, oh my an god! Enticement. Oh my god! Like totally. that. I mean, do, have they, do they not know who college aged men are? Like, there's no way. Like, it's just a bad idea to go to sleep in a room full of like men that are like eighteen to twenty two years old. Like I said, the best case scenario is that you don't get sleep. <laughs> You don't care to to uh, expound on that any further, Stefan. You, well, yeah, you seem I mean, to be you seem to be <laughs> saying that it would be a good thing. I, well, from a sports training perspective, that's the idea. I mean, you know, in training camp in the NFL, players nap during the day, and I think that the message here. I don't think that the message here. The message here is that we do not want our athletes to be doing other things. Of course. And, you know, this is getting into the bigger picture, but... When they're in the building, we can control them. LSU totally (laughs) gives this up in that story that you were quoting from, Josh. Uh, The, you know, look, this is LSU sports dot whatever. Um, So it's written by the athletic department. And the idea is to create a space where the athlete never has to leave. No more need to drive back to the apartment for quick meals or a power nap. Every need the player has when away from the field can be met. And it's all in one building. And then the the senior associate athletic director for health and wellness literally says, this is where they live. This is where <laughs> they spend most of the time. You do waste time going back and forth. Well, I can't argue with that logic. I mean, they're, they are literal pod people now. They have them in pods. <laughs> and the players are quoted saying, I think I'm just going to sleep here. It's I more mean, comfortable I- than my dorm room. I would say during two days, it is nice to not sure. have to go back to your apartment or your dorm. But like, yeah, that's like a a very like limited time of the year, and it's before classes actually. Start. It's also a very limited way of conceptualizing an undergraduate education. Oh, ninety yeah. <laughs> percent of it should be spent. So like, this is just like as honest as LSU could be here. Like these guys are our employees. They're like living in a company town. And oh, that means yeah. living, like now they're literally going to be living 
in the athletic complex. That's what we want. Right. Maybe they could pay them in LSU bucks that they could use to spend (laughs) on entertainment within the football facility. (laughs) It's just really sad, right? Because like, yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not giving them time to meet with their professors after class. They're not allowing them the ability to join the French club. I mean, not that that would happen anyway, but I mean, it's Louisiana. You never know. But, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, they're just saying you are here to play football, which is what everybody already knows the case is anyway. Right. Right. So they're just giving up the game here and I admire them for that honesty. But at the same time, it is a little disturbing in those video, in in the videos that I watched from the athletic department, there's no mention of you know, books or you guys are just mad about like hypotheticals that would never, never happen anyway. I think, I think it is useful. (laughs) It is useful to have all our uh, priorities spelled out here. So the, I also didn't see anywhere to hang stuff in these lockers. I was a little confused by that. Did you notice that? There's a separate room for shoulder pads. No, I mean like, like, like pants. Oh, Wait, was that real? Is that a real thing? It, there is a separate room for shoulder pads? I yeah. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. it sounds this, right. This I is mean, like where we're going. We don't need pants, Stefan. This is the locker <laughs> room of the future. There are, there are no pants. So an interesting uh, kind of debate took place on Twitter. And they're, they're obviously, and we can get into it, people are saying, why don't you spend this money on the library and, and those those usual Fights. But there is a, a debate between Eric Reed, who went to LSU and um, famously was the first player to, to kneel in support of Colin Kaepernick and is, is very outspoken on social justice. Um, and both a current player, Michael Divinity, and um, another LSU player, Eric Reed's former teammate, Tyron Matthew. So Eric Reed writes, um, you know, don't you find it interesting that we can convince people to donate millions to renovate a facility that doesn't need renovating. How many scholarships could have been given with the money used to renovate divinity? The current player comes back and says, why don't you Eric Reed donate money for scholarships? Uh, and Eric, uh, Reed responds, I want you to get, get money. Like, uh, uh, you know, why doesn't this money go to scholarships or, to put money in your in your pocket, and then Divinity just comes back with, you should give more money to, to LSU and put put your money where your mouth is. And then yeah. the Tyron Matthew thing is that um, one of the rooms in this facility is like the Tyron Matthew <laughs> player room center mm-hmm. something or other. And Eric Reed is like, why are you mm-hmm. why are you giving giving money to this? Oh, I mean, it's absurd for Tyron Matthew. I mean, first of all, they kicked him out of school there. You know what I mean? Like, they kicked him out of LSU. He didn't finish his career there. Um, I don't I don't understand that. And I think what Tyron Matthew said something along the lines of, like, you know, I don't do this for a show or whatever, but, like, giving a million dollars or whatever, you know, to a, to a university so that they can put your name on a room is like as big of a show. That's as big of a narcissist move as anything else. Like that is not a necessity at LSU. LSU doesn't need Tyron Matthews money. And, and the only reason you do that is a show of ego. Mm-hmm. I would argue um, he could give that money to his old high school. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 that's why I'm always just like, why are you give Draymond Green did the same thing a few years ago, and I'm always like, why are you guys giving? this like you know 100 million dollar enterprise your money your hard-earned money they didn't pay you anything they would they're actually they they are they are working in concert to deprive you and people that followed you the money and the money that you deserve for playing and both for using their your likenesses and your uniform numbers and everything else and yet and still you're going to give them money i just don't it, it has never made sense to me I should clarify that Eric Reed didn't call out Matthew specifically. Matthew responded right. to Reed, and Matthew, when Reed was like, "This money should have gone to scholarships," Matthew yeah. says, "I endowed a scholarship fund as well. I've done more in communities than most athletes. I don't do this for the camera. This is who I am. I don't need the attention. Most things I do, it comes out of my own pocket." Matthew donated a million dollars. 
for the players' yeah. lounge at the at LSU. Right. The justification Why? is that all of this is fine because it's private donations, and you know you want to get into this is a public institution. Um, there have been stories about how facilities at other at LSU at the library, for instance, and at other um, state colleges and universities are crumbling. Um, an LSU professor started a $20 million GoFundMe for the library in response <laughs> to the locker room getting unveiled, and it had like 4500 bucks donated as of Sunday night when I checked. Um, the, and I think this is a total red herring. I mean, sure, they're private donations, but the university has control over this. The university could turn down private donations. The university could establish policies that require, say, half of all private donations that go to the athletic department are funneled into a central fund that the university can then decide how to spend or decide that half of all donations to the athletic department are rooted toward academic purposes. I mean, there there is control here, and I think this is a total cop-out that football institutions use in order to justify how they spend lavishly on facilities and it ain't just it ain't just sec schools you know northwestern built like a 50 million dollar um football practice field and training complex last year i mean the issue is that i mean basically it's a confirmation of what we already know that like football teams and their athletic departments are entities separate and apart from the university i don't even think like it's hard to conceive of this as actually going to LSU. This is going to LSU football, Correct. which is like a totally different thing. And I think it is, they're even act, they're, they're categorized differently too. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, they're, 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 the only thing they share in common is Baton Rouge for the most part. Yeah. I think it's also important to think about how, you know, the reason that these facilities exist and this facilities arms race exists is for recruiting and these Facilities are designed to appeal to 18 to 22 year olds, or actually, they're probably designed to appeal even more to like 16 and 17 year olds who are coming to tour these schools. And it's a point of comparison between LSU and Alabama and Clemson. And Clemson has a slide, and LSU has what you know, the lazy river, right? Yeah. So Oregon has a barbershop, you know, (laughs) in its facility. So, so these are ways to differentiate, but these facilities exist only because players are not paid. They can't be given cash, that they can only be given scholarships. If players could be paid in cash, this money would go to the to the players. And so the players can't take the sleeping pod with them when they right. leave school or when they lose their scholarship. This is not going to improve their lives in, in any way um, to be able to sleep in this uh, pod for, you know, between one one to four years. It's just like the money has to go somewhere. All of this money that's being raised and spent and created. And it's, you know, not, not only does it show that LSU football isn't a part of the school, what it shows is that the money is being spent in a way that it's like player adjacent, but they actually can't hold or touch or keep. Right. But I would also argue that if players were paid, LSU wouldn't wouldn't be raising $28 million right. to pay players. These boosters and donors, if they were said, we need money to actually pay the players, you, we, we will take your money and we will give it to the players, those donations wouldn't be coming in. But if it's for a locker room, these fat cats are willing to give the money, but not to give nice to the of, players directly. Well, nice well, fat cats. Thank you. Yeah, well, also, I mean, uh, let's just consider the fact, too, that, like, I mean, (laughs) without being irresponsible, in some ways, they're probably finding money for both. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. But if it were overt, if it were explicit, Joel, do you think these boosters, if they knew that we are raising money for, like, the salaries of the players (laughs) would be as willing to donate as they would be for, you know, for physical plant? It would be interesting to see like what they would be willing to pay for Joe Burrow. Like if like, Joe Burrow, you know, was on the open market and they were like, look, man, we got to get some money together so we can get in this quarterback. You don't think that Joe Burrow could fetch, you know, five million dollars? I mean, if you send me that GoFundMe a couple times, I might I might lose my uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you know, I, I might part ways with a, with a few dollars just by accident if you just keep sending it to me. But I think you can feel good about yourself as a booster by donating to pay for this locker room. But I think I don't want to lump everybody into the same category, but a lot of the people who, you know, a huge number of LSU fans hate Eric Reed. Just hate him. Absolutely <laughs> hate him, despite all that he did as a player, just because of the way he critiques the system and speaks out against the the NCAA and against LSU in, in certain ways. And so I think that a lot of boosters or a lot of people wouldn't want to pay the players directly because they pathologize right. the players. Like they'll spend the money on tattoos or or whatever, like they don't trust the players and they think that any player who wants anything is like ungrateful. Right, um, there's a power dynamic here. I mean, if you're paying someone 20 grand in a brown envelope, that's, you have control. If you're man. contributing to a fund for the salaries, well, that seems sort of anti-capitalistic and we don't want that, you know, that you lose control over the players if it's out in the open. And that's part of the whole dynamic of college sports. It's about controlling the players. Right. It, it, it would be interesting. It, one thing that's just sort of like infantilizing about all of this, though, is that like, let's just say, you know, they decided to renovate slate offices like they just put, you know, 30 million dollars into the new slate. And you, know, you could sleep in the office. And, you know, we had this great new snack machine and like a cafeteria and like luxury chairs. And it is, like it that, is inconvenient to have to ride my bike home after. Right, right. It just doesn't. I don't think we would be like, wow, that is like we should be extremely grateful for that. Like, I mean, it would be cool, but I think everybody would just sort of understand well, what they're trying to get us to do is not leave well, and to work even harder. Even, uh, that's what to Silicon that's Valley. What that's Google what Facebook does. and Google Yeah, does. no, wait, I, but the BuzzFeed yeah. did that. I worked at BuzzFeed and that was the same thing. And then, like, that's not the same thing as like having money to go out and like do things and take care of bills and, you know, take care of family. And Google, like, it's just not the Google has nap pods. Yeah, this is. Yeah. You have <laughs> nap pods. <laughs> Yeah, it's, see, I, mean, I did not know that. It's similar. I mean, the way that you appeal to like young software engineers is not dissimilar from from how you appeal to young football players. Except young software engineers tend to be making six figures. Right. right. That is the big difference. And the way that you differ you're differentiating yourself not only by having the best snacks, but also by having competitive salaries, very high salaries, in fact. But there is this like halo effect that as a fan of a team you get from like having a good facility. It's like the whole thing of like, oh, we're a first class school or a first class program. Like it's a bragging rights thing. Whereas I think because we as college football fans understand how scuzzy it is, you're not going to have people bragging about, oh, we pay our players more. Like you actually, that's the thing that you're embarrassed by or that you say only the other team does. So it's a way to make yourself feel good about what a shitty and unfair system this is. It's just really weird, too. I mean, the first of all, the last time I was on this podcast, we were talking about University of Connecticut's new locker room, which was one million. It was one million dollar re renovations to their locker room. And um, I mean, just I mean, the, the the whole premise of not paying players is the idea that well, we don't want to like ruin the competitive balance. You know, we, you know, LSU would have this miraculous competitive balance. Like if we, if we started allowing them to pay players, but like nobody points to the idea that they spent 27 million more dollars on their locker room than the university of Connecticut, you know, the university who was very, Connecticut was very proud of their new locker room too. Like they showed it off. It was a big deal. They called it, you know, hashtag raise the bar. And here it is like a month later. And it's just like, Oh, they're actually not competing in the same, they're not competing for the same things that LSU is. And it's just like, why, like if, if we're not paying the players because of the competitive issues, then like, what is, what is this actually? Like, what are, like, why don't people look at this in the same way? Joel, you always raise the bar, man. Thank you. For, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. I mean, Connecticut's playing with a different bar than LSU, but with you, the bar is always raised. Appreciate your time, man. My pleasure. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. 
Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. We are about to talk with Emma Bacheleri of Sports Illustrated about the Atlantic League and technological innovations therein. But I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Emma will be back. We'll be talking with her about the New York Mets, lol Mets, as some describe them. Uh, they just made a big trade. Doesn't really make that much sense, or does it? Probably not, but Emma will explain. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. At its all-star game in York, Pennsylvania earlier this month, baseball's Atlantic League began using radar tracking technology to call balls and strikes. It's one of a bunch of experiments that the independent minor league is getting paid by Major League Baseball to try out. No mound visits, stealing first base, bigger bases, limited defensive shifts. Emma Bacheleri wrote about these changes in this week's Sports Illustrated. She is here in our studio with us now. Hi, Emma. Hi, how are you guys? Excellent. Uh, small sample size, especially on the robo-umps, but dare we say that all of these supposedly radical changes in baseball seem to be working just fine in the Atlantic League so far? Well, it's interesting because it depends on how you want to define fine. Like, a lot of these are aimed at uh, speeding up the pace of play by taking out dead time with Mound visits, uh, shrinking the amount of time you have between innings, that sort of thing. And their average time of game has only gone down about two and a half minutes. So you're not seeing a huge change in games being dramatically shorter or looking really different on the field. But in a sense, I think they don't want these changes to have a huge dramatic effect. They don't want it to feel like you're watching a different game. And in that respect, yeah, they've tweaked what's happening very slightly around the margins, and some of them are wackier than others. Um, but all in all, yeah, small changes that haven't destroyed anything or sent players rioting or whatnot. So, yeah. The biggest change seems to be in, like, around the edges of the strike zone. Like, there are some pitches before where, uh, you know, if it passed just off the edge of the plate, they would call it a ball, but now it's a strike because it just, like, barely clipped uh, the the zone, but this is how many pitches a game? Like six a game that seem like it's it kind of reminds me. It reminds me of the of tennis of the Hawkeye, where just like a sliver of the ball touches the line, and that's the call that's getting that's becoming a strike. But the umps have some discretion, right? Yes, in limited cases, um, basically, if something happens, like a curveball bounces in front of the plate and comes back up through the zone, the TrackMan system doesn't realize that it's done that. It just registers that it's a ball in the zone. So at this point, they can't, if a pitch just clips the edge, say, you know they what? They can't overrule they it. Can't yeah, overrule. they can't overrule it. They're, they're instructed not to. Yeah, they can only overrule it if it is something truly, clearly huge, like it actually bounced. But could you see, like, as this system is analyzed before it's implemented in the major leagues within the next, whatever, three to five years, that that could be one of the the modifications, like give the umps more discretion? Yeah, I think it could. And I think one of the things that will be really interesting, you mentioned it potentially rolling out in the major league sometime soon. The umpires in the Atlantic League are not unionized. The major league umpires are unionized. And I imagine we'll have very strong thoughts about how this is implemented. And that seems like a pretty logical thing to imagine they might want to talk about. There's description of confrontations where the player will start to argue with the ump and then realize <laughs> that the ump is not actually in control. I don't know if they're like, start arguing with the iPhone that is giving the ump the information, but this obviously has the chance to really dramatically change the relationships between players and umpires. And it, I mean, no matter what anyone says, 
this takes away authority from the ump and like umps love being in charge. They like love telling the players to like shut up or like go back to the dugout or and now they're just like, you know, reading a, a, or they, they get the uh, the call from like a voice in their head. Like they're just a delivery system. Yeah. And uh, the president of the Atlantic League told me that they had MLB had done a study before they set this up to look at how many arguments and ejections with umps come from balls and strikes. And it's almost all of them. Um, like that's the backbone of fighting with the ump and the backbone of getting thrown out. And yeah, now that's for the most part gone, unless you want to try to argue with the computer. A thing that's definitely going to happen, Stefan, is that somebody, uh, you know, the uh, Lou Pinella of, uh, of modern times is going to destroy like the, gonna the, r- the black box. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be a great moment in the history. Where is the black of box Ro- exactly? It's like way up high. It's yeah. It's in most parks. It's in front of the press box, so it's like the top tier of these. So you'd really need to climb up <laughs> yeah. with a bat to to destroy it. But I could see an I could see a physical altercation, ripping the earbud out of the ump's ear, maybe grabbing the iPhone out of his pocket. That would be cool. Yeah. Although we actually have seen our first ejection from Frank Viola uh, manages. Oh really? And. He didn't like a call, started fighting with the ump who pointed to his earbud. He said, don't listen to the computer, do your job with some swear words thrown in. And Frank Viola is the first guy to be uh, ejected. Good. It's good to know that the potential for being tossed from a game is not completely eliminated. Yeah. That, that, is was, good. that would kind of suck. <laughs> um, the stealing first base thing, I feel like has not gotten enough attention. The idea there is that on a on any wild pitch, it doesn't have to be a swing and a miss. Just any wild pitch, you can run for first. Yeah. Have players been trying that? Do they forget that you can take first base? I think that's one of the ones that's a little weirder because it is such a reworking of how you approach your plate appearance. But yeah, it's basically the idea of like a drop third strike could be any pitch anywhere in the count, even if you don't swing. Can you start running for first base um, before the ball even crosses the plate? Like, what if you just took <laughs> off for first base <laughs> and hoped as the pitcher was, like, going in, into his windup? Unfortunately, you can't. Uh, that would be a lot more cool. But it's, <laughs> the, I think the technical wording is any pitch that is not caught in flight. So it has to cross and then not be caught by the catcher. Mm. All right, let's go through some of the – can we do a little lightning round on sure. some of these changes? Bigger bases? I don't quite get it. Just uh, to avoid contact? Yes, and it also they're hoping it might increase stealing because if you think about it, they're three square inches bigger. So the distance between first and second is six inches less that you can take a slightly bigger lead, like a microsecond of help. Yeah. That hasn't really been happening. Stolen base rates are the same. So the bases no longer 90 feet apart. One of the fundamental things about baseball. Well, wait, Dead. is the difference in, is the 90 feet from the center of the base to the center? It's from the line oh, to point. the center of the base? <laughs> Actually, or to the edge of the base. It's got to be to the center I of the base. I think it would have to be the center, center yeah. Base, yeah. All right, fine. I'm totally Never wrong. Never mind, Josh. You're but totally wrong. practically speaking, for a base runner, it's not 90 feet apart. Correct. And maybe yeah. has never been. So, so now just it's, ignore little, me. it's now a little bit shorter. All right. Um, no mound visits? I don't have a problem with that. You don't have a problem with getting rid of the mound visit? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that seems like – so if, if we can zoom out here for one second, okay. I think the issue with – Baseball is not necessarily the length of the game. It's there being a lot of boring stuff that happens yeah. during the game. And this is definitely a boring thing that happens yes. during the game. Right. Yeah. And especially when, you know, you'll see it happening multiple times throughout just dead, dead, dead time. I do like the modification that they've implemented where you're allowed, the catcher is allowed to go to talk to the pitcher if he's talking about getting their signals right. But the umpire is an escort. And he, he eavesdrops on the conversation. Yeah. And the best part is that when the conversation is over and the umpire deems that they didn't discuss anything illegal, a safe sign is made. <laughs> well, I actually saw an ump who, in a game that had had like three of those visits, got kind of cheeky at the end and did a double thumbs up to the crowd <laughs> rather than safe. So some creative interpretation there allowed. Uh, shifts. No shifts. No, no infield shifts, no sticking the shortstop on the right side of the infield. What's the rule? You have to have two infielders. But this was modified, too. Originally, they gave the umpires more latitude to say if a second baseman was standing in the outfield, that constituted an illegal shift. They, they've yeah. backed off of that, right? Yeah, they've codified it now that it's just two fielders on either side of second, but they can be as far back or as far in as they want to be. That one's interesting to me because the shift is, it's not an innovation in that the defensive shift has existed in baseball going back 
for you could probably tell us, Emma, like since the beginning of baseball. Yeah. I mean, Ted Williams was the first to have his name attached, but he wasn't the first to do it. Right. But you would certainly you could certainly argue, and I think it's true, that the shift is more innovative than suppressing the shift. And so it's interesting that uh, we we shouldn't categorize all of these rules as we're trying out like fun, new and exciting yeah. and innovative things. Like in some cases, we're actually trying to suppress a new, uh, I don't know if it's exciting, but an innovative strategy in order to, I guess the idea here is just like make hitting easier. Yeah. And it's interesting that they're trying it out in the Atlantic League, which is not a league that's ever had many shifts because you don't have advanced scouting data on guys beyond like, oh, he's a lefty pole hitter, so we might do it. But so that hasn't been a big change for most people because most managers didn't shift their guys a lot anyway. So none of them really had much to say on that. But I imagine that would obviously be a pretty big change if that one came to MLB. And another thing that I found interesting in your reporting was the rule that was not implemented uh, and that was discussed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So they talked about moving the mound back two feet, um, which in the past, uh, MLB has raised and lowered the mound, but not moved it back on the field, um, which would change a lot in how pitchers do everything. Basically, that changes the movement on their pitches, that changes, that might even change the way that they wind up. Um, and that changes it for hitters too. Like the idea is that would increase offense by making it easier to hit and harder for pitchers to do what they're doing. Um, but because that would be such a radical physical change, both to what pitchers and hitters have to do and to the field itself, they've pushed that off to tentatively next year, but it's not even set in stone for next year. I don't even see this one. It seems crazy to me because I mean, and for, if I were a player in the Atlantic league, either a pitcher or a hitter, this is just, I mean, this is radical, but I don't quite get it. Like, it's been well, they proven very that they broke very loudly because, you know, if you're a pitcher, it completely screws up everything. Your release point, your delivery, your motion, your psychology of can I get the ball there at 62 feet versus the 60 feet I've been throwing a baseball from since I was 13 or 14 years old. And from the hitter's perspective, it's the same thing. Timing, picking up the ball out of the pitcher's hand, how that affects your swing and when you swing. Well, and the real problem here for players is, uh, I think for all of them, I could understand them thinking like we're being treated in this very instrumental way, like we're being seen not as actual human beings, but as uh, experimental subjects and they're not unionized, right? So they can do whatever, uh, you know, the, the management here, Major League Baseball can do whatever they want and position them however they want. Um, but this kind of change actually moving the mound back and and I think you quoted somebody saying this, this would essentially create um, a two-tiered system in baseball that would make it incredibly difficult for them to move into affiliated baseball. Right, because their again. stats are going to be completely screwed up and it's yeah. going to affect their performance. And then even if someone is scouted by a major league team and gets the invitation to come up, if you've been throwing all season from 62 feet, that's going to be almost impossible to adjust back. And so it's hard to imagine even if we thought that that was a good idea. Like, what if not players in the Atlantic League, what is the subset of actual professional players who you could test this on? Like, is there a, a set of players? Yeah, I really don't think there is. And I was talking with some of the players about this. No one is going to want to use the minor league seriously because they're developing those players to come to the major leagues. They don't want to do anything that's going to mess with their timing, mess with their ability to adjust to life in MLB. College is just way too different of a game that just doesn't make any sense. And there's lesser independent leagues, like the Atlantic League is kind of a top tier of indie baseball. But th then you have the, the same problems, really. Well, and if you get into a lesser league, then you get into the issue of the players just not being good enough yeah. right. for it to be an interesting— Or, or to be meaningful, right. right. Should we say, like, I don't know if we, if we have said that this seems, like, smart, actually, by Major League Baseball to be doing this full stop in the first place, to be trying out all these rule changes, like an organization, an entity that's not really been known for its pension for experimentation or radicalism. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say that's not great scientific method work by them to change so many variables at once. Yeah. But it's definitely interesting to watch. And I, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense before you try just implementing all these changes wholesale in MLB or in the minors to try it out here. And 
you know, a lot of people in the Atlantic League do seem to be happy about the attention that brings just a different spotlight on them and a new formal connection to MLB that they've never had before. Emma Bachelary writes about baseball for Sports Illustrated. Check out her story, How the Atlantic League Became MLB's Laboratory for the Future of Baseball online and in this week's magazine. Emma, thanks a lot for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. Now it is time for Afterballs. And we just talked about the Atlantic League and everyone who plays in that league, Stefan, is looking for some publicity so they can get out of indie ball into affiliated baseball, hopefully the big leagues. So let's give some shine to the Atlantic League Player of the Month for June, an outfielder for the York Revolution by the name of J.P. Sportman. If you want to get noticed, J.P., you need a less generic last name than Sportman. But in June, Sportman hit 354 with three home runs, 21 ribbies, five steals, 27-game hitting streak. So give Sportman a chance. Stefan, what is your J.P. Sportman? Josh, NFL training camp is back. It is a month-long slog. Players hate it. But based on the way some of them arrive, you'd think they were actually psyched to be back. T.Y. Hilton of the Colts showed up in a hat that had a picture of his doppelganger, the ghost, alongside a picture of himself. I was imagining him as floating inside a hat, like sitting in a hat. That was just clothing, though. Anthony Sherman of the Kansas City Chiefs drove up in a NASCAR belonging to Clint Boyer. You say NASCAR, not NASCAR car. NASCAR car. He was wearing a NASCAR car suit and a helmet, too. We've got young speedsters on the offense, and I'm an old head now, so the only way I'm going to keep up with these young kids is riding this NASCAR, Sherman said. He did not say NASCAR car. (laughs) The kicker, punter, and long snapper on the Chiefs arrived in a military truck to support the troops. Jalen Ramsey of the Jaguars showed up in an armored bank truck and a bullhorn into which he said, y'all know what time it is. A man so good, they're fixing to give him his own jail, Jalen Towers, because these receivers are on 24-hour lockdown. He's got eight master locks in his pocket. They're all on lockdown all season. The man, the myth, Jalen Ramsey. Seems like he's kind of mixing imagery there because obviously the reason to come he wants to get paid. paid. That's also true. But then he's also talking about jail. Like, why wouldn't he be in a warden's outfit? Come on, Jalen. Focus. He's got to focus. Tariq Cohen of the Bears arrived in a Polaris slingshot. It was one of those three wheeled cars. Here's what I'm going to read from the Chicago Tribune. The engine purred, the tires screeched, North Carolina rappers DaBaby and Stunna blared from the stereo speakers. Inside was a five foot six running back wearing Gucci sunglasses and a Walter Payton jersey and exuding a can't wait energy the Bears will have to maintain over the next three weeks. The winner of inventive ways to arrive at training camp was predictably the always modest Antonio Brown, who now plays for the Oakland Raiders. Go look at the video of Brown getting out of uh, a hot air balloon in Napa. But you think this might be a new phenomenon, Josh? It is not a new phenomenon, arriving at training camp in a sporty way. I thought we would go back in time and look at some of the um, more interesting modes of arrival. You know, in the late 90s, it was flashy cars. Tra Thomas, first-round draft pick, arrived at Eagles training camp in a black Hummer, which had just been made popular by Desert Storm. You need a war to make the car popular. Kenny Holmes that year. Tennessee Oilers arrived in a 1963 Oldsmobile 98 that he was restoring personally. Respect for that hard work. 2006. This might be my favorite. I may be blowing my favorite one early, but I'm just going to read this story. Albany, New York, intent on being noticed this season, receiver Michael Jennings showed up at training camp in a souped-up Chevy Caprice with 26-inch wheels, a blaring sound system, and his number 1-5 stenciled on the back window. He had the number cut into the back of his hair and was recently seen at lunch wearing a Giants t-shirt bearing pictures of himself and Tom Coughlin, the head coach, and the phrase, put me in, coach, I'm ready to play. Now, you'd think that Michael Jennings was a star, He was on the practice squad for two years. He wanted to be noticed by Tom Coughlin. Um, Be treated like a star, act like a star. Exactly. Uh, Reggie Wayne, 2010. Wayne arrived at training camp in a yellow dump truck wearing an orange construction vest and a white hard hat with blue lettering that said Super Bowl under construction. (laughs) 
Business trap, hard hat. YMCA action there. Ben Roethlisberger and his offensive line mates showed up in uh, a string of mini Coopers in 2010. Okay. Second sentence of the lead of that story. Roethlisberger was investigated by the authorities after allegations of sexual assault and has been suspended for six games by the NFL for his behavior, said when he and offensive tackle Willie Colon pulled up at St. Vincent's College in their convertibles that it felt as if they had just been here. That's how you're ending it? That's how I'm going to end it there because Ben Roethlisberger is kind of clueless. What a place to start. Because you really want to make a grand entrance after you've been suspended for sexual assault allegations. I wonder if Antonio Brown is just going to lean into this Phileas Fogg thing all year long. Like he should play games in an old-timey aviator's outfit. No, you know what he should do? He should travel from game to game in a hot air balloon. He should. The Antonio Brown Express. Madden Cruiser, 2019. Josh, what's your JP Sportman? On Friday afternoon, a Slate colleague alerted me to what she described as the Louisianaist of Louisiana legal cases. Now, Stefan, take a moment to think about the names of the parties that might be involved in such a case, a case that was billed thusly. I'll ask the listeners at home to do the same. I'll give you a second. Put on some uh, Louisiana background music. This was a civil case contested in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana. In that case was, get your Zydeco washboard, drum roll, please. Uh, who dat yat chat LLC versus who dat Inc. <laughs> who dat, as you may know, is part of a chant that is popular among fans of the New Orleans Saints football franchise. The whole chant being who dat say they're going to beat them Saints. Who dat, who dat. Let's listen to a little bit of that. As Amy Davidson Sorkin documented in The New Yorker in 2010, the phrase had origins in minstrelsy, but Hollis Robbins, who in 2010 was a Johns Hopkins professor, argued in The Root that it was okay to say who dat because the phrase has been, quote, promoted by black voices, among them Aaron Neville, who recorded this version of When the Saints Go Marching In in 1983. The who dat chant that you'll hear is provided by a group of black and white Saints players. Who dat say gonna beat them Saints? If you find that song on YouTube, you'll see an opening title card that says Who Dat, established 1983, New Orleans, Louisiana, copyright and trademark 1983, Who Dat, Inc., And that brings us to our legal dispute. Let us begin with the factual and procedural background via the court file. On March 11th, 2010, while making plans to open a coffee shop in Violet, Louisiana, named Houdat Yat Chat, Houdat Yat Chat received notice from Houdat Inc., stating that Houdat Inc. was the sole owner of the phrase Houdat and all derivations thereof. It wasn't just Houdat Yat Chat who drew the ire of Houdat Inc., Houdat Inc. also went after two t-shirt vendors that were selling Houdat apparel. You'll be happy to know, though, that Houdat Yat Chat LLC versus Houdat Inc. was settled in 2012. The coffee shop was allowed to keep its name. The disputes with the t-shirt vendors were also settled, and they were allowed to keep selling shirts. And also, Houdat Inc. and the NFL settled claims against each other, with the AP reporting that their agreement called for the league, the Saints, and the company to make co-branded merchandise available to fans. So everybody's happy. Everybody wins. Except I am sorry to report that, according to Yelp, the Houdat Yat Chat Eatery is now closed. R.I.P. Houdat Yat Chat. Can you still read any of the reviews from when it was open? There weren't any reviews on Yelp. Well, no wonder it closed. Nobody reviewed Houdat Yat Chat. I never knew you existed, Houdat Yat Chat. I did not do my part to keep you open. And for that, I apologize. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want more hangup and listen to the sports podcast. If you do, our bonus segment this week is with Emma Bachelary. We talk about the New York Mets clown show or not a clown show. 
clown show. Yeah, it doesn't really make any conventional sense for them to be picturing themselves as a contender. They're six games out of the second wildcard spot. It's a decently crowded wildcard race there in the National League. And it really, everything they've had been doing and to some extent are still doing seems to be positioning them as sellers who are interested in re-gearing for next year, not tearing down or anything, but not buying and actively being a contender right now. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Seven Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.